Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Andy Probasco. Today we'll be talking about Bug and the VSL, as well as Ether Revolt. As I'm sure some people have already noticed, for the first time in the show's history, we don't have Nat with us. It's just me, Josh, and Andy. Did you guys notice that? I I just uh I never noticed him. Oh, okay. That's fair. Well that's a that's a significant percentage of our uh magic knowledge gone, so I would agree with that. So the reason that Nat is missing is because Nat has hired on he's a he's a design editor, right? Uh, I think that's right. I think that's... I think he's an editor that touches everything. They're, they're probably, like, using him for all sorts of things, editing-wise. That's probably true. To be clear, uh, a design editor for Wizards of the Coast. Yes, so... that is the critical part. And as he is now an employee of Wizards of the Coast, uh, he is now no longer allowed to participate in our silly podcast. Honestly, I wouldn't want him to, because even the slight possibility that he would say something that he shouldn't and get himself into hot water, I don't think is worth it. I yeah. wouldn't put him in that position. <laughs> That's just true. I th- I think he he said we we might have the option that we could we could get him on as a guest sometime, but he has to be a lot more careful about the things he says as a public persona. Um, yeah, I know he has like specific rules with his Twitter account now. You know, hashtag Watsy staff. Exactly, hashtag Watsy staff and everything. I don't, I don't know if there's an official list of things he can and can't say, but I'm assuming he is at least going to try to be a little more family friendly and all around positive. I, I, I've heard that before. Um, uh, Melissa Detora uh, works for Wizards now, or I think she still works there now. Uh, but she was a New England player for a long time. I've, I've drafted a lot with her. And and I've heard just – it's like an overnight thing. You start working there, and then the first week, you learn so many ridiculous secrets <laughs> of, like, just cards that won't be printed for two years. The na- At a minimum, just, like, the name and the theme over the next, you know, nine sets. Just all this stuff just overnight, and it's all blurred. You don't remember – you get really nervous. I, I've heard this from Melissa, like, talking. You're just going to blurt it out? Yeah, if, if you're having a conversation where uh, th- this didn't happen to me. My friend my friend Stefan was drafting with her, and all their friends were having a conversation about, like, oh, do you think Wizards is going to print this, or do you think they're going to fix this problem in standard or all this? And, and she's just silent the entire time and, like, <laughs> trying to remember, like, which cards have been printed yet? <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> if I can talk about this because I have no idea if it's a real card or not. Whether it's going to be out in a month or it's been out for a year, it's you're living this crazy other universe. Riggers um, are going to be huge. Oh no! <laughs> I know, right? It's going to be. Uh, can't say I'm not at least a little bit jealous. And when I say a little bit, I mean a lot jealous. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty exciting. I think it it certainly puts us in an interesting position as serious vintage because I think it's not hard to see that. Nat was a primary driving force and a heavy creative input on the show. I would I would say that Nat was the main host of the show, and that means that we and I think that one of that's one of the reasons why it took us a while to come around to recording another show, because we sort of have to figure out where our new center is and where we're going. And I mean, I know that Andy is a little bit worried about becoming too much of a 
of of a driving force in the show. But Andy, I'm going to tell you that I don't care <laughs> because as far as people who actually are still playing Magic regularly, you're it for serious vintage. So yeah, he's a out. celebrity. We'll we'll just have to get a lot of guests. That's what <laughs> I think that's fair. We're going to see where it takes us. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but this is sort of uh, an opportunity for us, for the podcast. We're probably going to try a few things out. Some of the episodes might not work. Some might work a lot. I would love to um, – I feel like it would be a good brand to bring more Team Serious players onto the podcast, not necessarily – As long as it's not Tuan. Uh, you know, we can we can put them on a delay, a <laughs> tape delay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I love the idea of, uh, you know, what's great about Team Serious is it's this fairly big community for, you know, a team, quote-unquote, of Magic players. They're all over the country. They all have the same kind of laid-back, fun-first, but still try attitude. And I feel like it's a shame that the uh, anyone out there who likes the podcast but hasn't, like, hung out with us personally, I feel like they would probably like basically everyone else on the team. Right, <laughs> I think it's it would be great to have a, a rotating cast of participants. Well, the team is like an anti-team. I mean, it was it was born out of the days of big magic teams or big-ish magic teams, probably the second phase of big magic teams. And you know, we were just a group of people that liked to hang out and have fun. And Team Serious was a joke, and still might be. Uh, and it's, <laughs> you know, like, come to dinner, and that's the team, right? Like. There's no initiation. There's not much secrecy. Yeah, almost no secrecy at all. I definitely, um, I mean, I, I, I live out in Boston. There's, there's pockets of Team Serious around the country. But I definitely, people are organizing, you know, testing sessions and tournaments and games. But it's, a, it's always like a backseat to, you know, the community and the fun and keeping perspective. And it's, uh, it's a good message to spread to the world. I guess we're going to find out who is going to join on or guests to spread that message. Yeah, let us know if you want to hear from anybody. With or without Matt, we are going to talk about Bug today. Right before the podcast, we were talking a little about, uh, we're calling it Bug Maybe more than any uh, other deck in Vintage, I feel like people haven't decided what to call this deck yet. I've heard Bug Fish. I've heard Bug Control. I've heard Bug with a lot of other whatever's after it. People like calling it Sultai now. Is Sultai the colors, or is that some other reference that it's, I'm not it's, it's the color combination. Okay. Something I learned recently is that uh, – this has been public information for a long time. I just didn't know it – is that Wizards really, really pushes those color names – so yeah. on the VSL, which we'll talk about, or the VSL plan, I submitted my deck. I called it Bug Control, and then they posted it as Soul Tide Control. They just <laughs> – like I, I, I gave the name, and it wasn't like they picked the name. Like other people picked ridiculous names for their decks, and they just put them there, right? Like, Yeah. Um, can we go back and do like Elder Dragon colors so I can play like <laughs> – So you can remember that. Rith Control or something. Yeah, I mean <laughs> here's a great tangent – this is a very team serious tangent. Naming colors by letters versus naming them by like wedge and shard names is like really controversial and vintage. I feel so. There was like a big argument in the Facebook group the other day about that. <laughs> I can't do tribe or shard names. I just don't know them. I don't even. Yeah, and that's 
I always go back to colors just because I, like, I feel like if you didn't play standard during those, like, I, I totally miss those sets as far as what it was like on a day-to-day basis to play them. So I have no idea what they mean. Yeah, I agree. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I guess if you're a new player, even if those sets aren't out, you kind of, they're pushing it on you. So you learn those names, but for people who've been around forever, it's just hard, hard ingrained and it's just, it's telling you the colors. You don't have to remember anything. It's just the colors. Kids these days and the new tribe names. It's particularly bad, I think, for bug because it's, it's perfect. It's a one syllable word. It's easy to remember. It's easy to say. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just Sultai, whatever that means. Yeah. Or, uh, rug. Like rug delver was huge in legacy forever. Like I don't even know what that shard is, but now it's no longer. Yeah. Rug I don't know. Delver. The only thing I remember is Jeskai. I always remember Jeskai probably because they played a lot of Jeskai ascendancy. <laughs> like that one's easy. Your flagpole card actually has the name in it. Yeah. And so to me, that's, you can obviously call that Jeskai if you want to, cause it's got the card too. The newer Jeskai mentor decks don't have any Jeskai cards in them, but I, the name clicks to me. Just because I play the other deck, but mm-hmm. it's just uh, I, I don't have a, I don't have a strong feeling about this, and some people are very strongly I will never use the shard names, but I I never know when everyone says a shard name or a wedge name or any of that. I don't know. Whenever we have a discussion like this about the old versus the new, I think back to when Nat and I were saying that we would never ever play cards with the new card frame. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems really funny in hindsight, but man, we were pretty serious about that back then. I mean, this, for vintage players, that happens like every, like every two years, right? Every two years, they change something that I've been playing this way for 15 years. I'm never gonna, I have a friend who, um, he, he doesn't play, he only plays cube, um, but he will never draft a planeswalker because the first time, (laughs) the first time he saw a planeswalker, um, he had never seen the card type before, and someone played it against him. So, like, he they just had to explain on the spot, like, it does this, it does this, it does, like, ten different things. You can attack it, you can deal damage. Like, it's very complicated to explain just on the spot. And then, like, it crushed him, obviously, because most Planeswalkers in Cube are very good. So, he was just, I can't handle this. Planeswalkers <laughs> ruin the game. I will never draft a Planeswalker. I will draft anti-Planeswalker cards. This seems fair. But Andy... Tell us about your experiences with Sultai Bug. Okay, okay. So Sultai Bug is actually a deck, a lot of, uh, it's a very popular Team Serious deck. I would say proportionately more Team Serious members play it than, like, people in the in the general metagame. Um, <laughs> normal people. You were going to say normal people. Uh, uh, but but uh, Josh obviously has played it a ton. Jimmy McCarthy and John Hammock both played it at the last Eternal Weekend. I mean, that's that's actually why I played it, was I had this kind of, like, font of resources I could talk to and ask, hey, I want to play this deck, but the metagame's going to look like this. What do I change? What looks good? What looks bad? I think, uh, well, it, it, let's, let's assume people have no context. We'll post some deck lists on the show notes, but Bug Control or Bug Fish is sort of this, um, I feel like it first popped up. Maybe, like, shortly after Lodestone was printed? I'm not sure. I think it's been around before that. I, I mean, I think... Maybe. It existed for a while, but, like, I think the things that pushed it over the edge are probably, like, Deathrite Shaman. Yeah, Deathrite Shaman's definitely a key a key piece of the deck. There have been uh, blue, black, green decks in Vintage for a long time, but specifically we're talking about... Um, I guess it's kind of it's kind of like a vintage mid-rangey deck. 
right? It's somewhere in the middle of Control and Big Blue and maybe even a, t- a tiny bit Hate Bears. It runs like a lot of cards that generate a little bit of value when you play them. Deathrite Shaman is like a very key card in the deck. I, I think one of the really strong points is a deck that really takes advantage of Deathrite Shaman, both in the sense that it can activate all the abilities. It's a deck that can gain control of the game and then slowly kill them with the Deathrite Shaman more so than some other decks. And it's a deck that really loves its hard to cast through drops. So Deathrite's great at that. I think the uh, philosophy of Bug, and certainly pipe in if I'm wrong, Josh, is kind of um, you're trying to be pretty decent against the field. You're not trying to have one really good matchup, one run really bad matchup. It's like a, a lot of 51% matchups is like the goal. You have tools against everything, but you don't have a lot of broken starts, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, playing the deck a bunch, like, your hands are very mediocre, but, like, your opening hand really is not that important because the deck does draw a fair amount of cards, so you just draw cards. I mean, it was interesting watching your VSL matches for two weeks and seeing both sides of the board because I think that the way the deck is set up is you're exactly right. I mean, it's 51% against the field or 50%, whatever. I don't know. I think you can win almost every game if you make the right decisions, but sometimes the right decisions are like not intuitive at all or actually like seem wrong, but it's possible. That's what interests me about the deck. There's a huge number of decisions. You're talking about a deck that has, I mean, death right on its own, just gives you a huge number of decisions, wastelands, you have you know, removal spell, and it is often tricky to figure out which of the things to remove. There's a lot of cards that are sort of flexible that you can do a few different things with. Thought that Obviously, that makes it difficult. I don't have as much experience as the deck as you do, so some of these decisions are, you know, coming up for the first time for me. The correct answer is to cast Gurmag Angler and kill your opponent. Yeah. Gurmag Angler every time. Well, it's also a deck that learns to your, to your play style, because I think that You know, I play the deck really, really controlling, and I know that I've been playing in tournaments where, like, I'm pretty much dead, and my friends that are watching leave, and I end up and they're like, wait, you won that game? And I'm like, yeah. How did you do that? Yeah. I I think if you just stick it out, and, you know, you can't just scoop, because, like, sometimes you just top deck the right card, and, I mean, the deck is full of answers. You just need to draw the right answers at the right time, which becomes challenging, but... Painful Truth actually helped with that a lot. The card doesn't seem great, but I think it's pretty good in this deck. Yeah, I was very impressed by Painful Truth. It was a card that I, uh, you know, I didn't like it on paper, like reading it, but like playing with it. It's nice. It's slow. You look at it compared to something like Gush, like it's a slow card. You can't just run it out there, but that's not what it's really there for. I think it may be important because Painful Truth is not a typical card played in Vintage 2. Let everyone know what Painful Truth says. Okay, so it's a sorcery. It costs two colorless and a black. It has Converge. And since you're mostly vintage players, you probably have no idea what that is either. I don't. It's the mechanic that's only on Painful Truth. Yeah, you draw X cards and you lose X life, where X is the number of colors of mana spent to cast Painful Truth. So your maximum on the normal casting cost is three, but it does count for spheres. With Deathrite Shamans, I mean, you could really get all the way to five. Yeah, if there's two spheres out, you can you can pay one man of each card and draw five cards. Yep. I've never done that, but I hear you've done that a few times. I've never drawn five. I don't. I may have drawn drawn four, but I, I don't know. Well, the death right, it's actually pretty easy to kind of just get whatever color mana you want. Um, yeah. Painful truths. 
it, it's slow to tap out for three to draw three, but the deck has like a pretty solid base to control the game. So you kind of just throw out a bunch of like one for one removal spells and like discard effects, and then you reload with it. Like you're doing it after you, uh, after you finished your initial onslaught surviving it. It's not a card that you really necessarily want to play on turn two or two or three like uh, you would with Gush. It's kind of a, once you're done, that's how you lock up the game. And doing that, it's it's really good at that. Yeah, the unfortunate part is, like, I've had to cast it for two sometimes with Wastelands, but, you know, sometimes you just got to grin and bear it. <laughs> I, I had a game on Magic Online recently where I actually, my opponent had a sphere out, and I had four colors of mana, but I still cast it for two on purpose because it was like a race, and I, I really felt like I needed the extra two life. Uh, so that can happen too, but I imagine that's pretty rare. Yeah, and I think, uh, so I like, I've played the deck for a while and Leovold came out around Eternal Weekend and it hadn't really seen a ton of play, but you know, I know Jimmy and I talked about it for a while and John Hammock and we kind of picked him up that weekend and okay, well, let's play with this card. You know, it costs three. It impacts the board state, uh, especially against the mentor decks. It's huge against the mentor decks. So creatures with impacts to the board state are exactly what you want in the deck. And I think all of us were pleasantly surprised by how good that card was. I really feel like the deck, it's perfect for the deck. If you were to look at the list today and have never seen it before, I think you would guess that Leovold was printed and someone invented the deck to use Leovold really well. Yeah. But it's not. Basically, the deck already existed, and then you just throw in, you know, three or four Leovolds. It didn't even change that much. It was just perfect printing for that deck. And it's a pretty easy turn three play with four death right shamans, right? Like it's not that hard. Yeah, I mean, and you're running you're running all the on color moxes. Any one of those or a lotus means you're you're casting on turn two usually because you have plenty of fetches and duels. Yeah, so I know you played something a little different than Jimmy and I played and, and John played even, I think. So I think let's talk about that because I think that'll be pretty interesting. Our two lists are definitely very different. I started I think I actually originally, originally started with your list exactly, a list from the, the Team Serious boards. I played that or something similar to it in some Magic Online events to kind of get get a feel for it. When I went to the VSL, though, I made a lot of modifications specifically for, like, the projected metagame. So what did, what did you project the metagame? Well, I, I, knew, I knew it was going to be a lot of blue decks, a lot of Mentor. I expected somebody it's far like i expected somebody to be playing probably reduke playing storm combo or outcome uh paradoxical outcome combo now that's just one person but it's a it's a six person tournament <laughs> and right. so one out of six players on a storm combo deck or outcome deck is i think actually more common than like you know if if, if you're going to a 60 person tournament you probably don't have 10 storm players there yeah, I guess it would be actually one out of five because it's just my opponents, right? So one out of five of my opponents are playing that. So I expected like two or three mentor decks, a storm combo, and I thought somebody might play shops. So I, I ended up with a sideboard that I think, I think would have been solid against shops with things like nature's claims, but those are not anywhere near as good against Eldrazi. I got punished for that. <laughs> so, so yeah, some, some of the differences, and I don't know if your list right in front of me, but I know you're running two Gurmag anglers and I was just running one Tassiger. And I like Tassiger better against the blue decks, but Gurmag Angler is a lot better against Eldrazi. Yeah, and I split that to one and one is what I played last, and I like that. 
you know, Gurmag Angler is great when you've basically controlled the board state and, you know, you're ready to attack. But Tassiger is also great when you need to, like, draw cards at your end step, which is happens pretty often. Yeah, that's true. It might be obvious to the listeners, it might not be, but it's it's really, Gurmag costs more mana, it doesn't have that ability, but just that one extra power means you get to kill Reality Smashers, and that alone, that's huge, like that's worth it, an extra mana, in, in that matchup in yeah. particular. It still has some advantages in other matchups too, but I think that's the single biggest difference. Well, that was why you and Jimmy picked out Gurmag Angler in the first place, right? Because you were like, this guy... Makes the grade. Yeah, that's exactly why. We played a Dismember main. That was for Eldrazi. We played, I think, two Gurmag Anglers. We went to the one-in-one split on Eternal Weekend. And then we also played Baleful Strix, which I think is great. Replaces itself. And it also is pretty impactful against Mentor, you know, because people are playing Mentors and they're like, okay, great, well, I'm just going to attack. And it, it takes them back a couple turns when they're like, all right, well, I'm not going to sacrifice my mentor. I'm going to attack you with these stupid 1-1s or 2-2s. It makes a big deal. Yeah, the uh, Baleful Strix um, is the, you know, the 1-1 artifact creature who draws a card when you play it. I've, I've always loved about it. It doesn't cost more through Thorn. It doesn't cost more through Lodestone. Uh, Lodestone was more important two years ago or last year. It makes a difference, right? It's, it's, uh, yeah. if your opponent's leading with a, with a heavy Thorn draw, and there are lots of decks that have them, Belfast Strix is still just on curve. You still just play at turn one or turn two pretty easily. I was running one, but but I could have used more. Yeah, I think the other cards that I like a lot are Crucible in the main, and then some number of Trigon Predators and Null Rod. I think Mana Denial ends up being a pretty significant strategy when I play the deck, because I do play it so controlling. And, And there's so many times that if you can just shut off a couple mana sources, like, that's basically your route to victory Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you sometimes end up like i don't know trigon always worries me in that he's a little bit expensive and a little bit slow do you sometimes just sort of die before he can actually become relevant or is that i mean i guess the whole deck is a little bit slow yeah and you have the tools to keep it going yeah i mean like you play you don't play trigon predator on turn three and cross your fingers like you play trigon predator when you've wastelanded two or three lands and you've killed a creature and like, you know, you're ready to hmm. start controlling the board in a different way. Uh, I think hmm. that that's okay. how I view Trigon Predator. I totally agree. It, it's weird to think this way because it's a, it's a three drop and there are definitely three drops in vintage that you just, you run out quickly and get advantage from, but Trigon's kind of like a finisher. It, it's like the entreat the angels in a miracle stack. You play it just to seal the deal. It's too slow just to run out normally and do anything uh what that means is you need to build a deck you don't just run for trigon predators and think you're going to be shops right you run uh, a combination of you know cheap removal spells maybe some counters extra mana and then once you've used that to not die you play the trigon and seal the deal and that's how i've seen trigon in a lot of decks but that's that's definitely how it plays in plays out in bug i think hmm. i think that's almost a lot of what bug does as in my more limited experience playing the deck, it really feels like like the first two or three turns, you're very vulnerable in the sense that you have lots of removal and counters and discard, but there's nothing you can do on the first three turns that will make your opponent think, oh, I need to have a force of war, I'm going to lose this. Yeah. There's, there's nothing you can really threaten them with that if they don't answer it, it will cost them the game. Yeah, I mean, your first couple turns are just basically, you're setting yourself up for turns 
four and onwards and hoping that you make the right decisions mm-hmm. that you set up the best possible way for the game state going forward. Yeah, exactly. You're just you're throwing out a thought seize, trying to buy yourself two turns, uh, setting up a counter, wasting the right land. If you get there, right? Like if you if you untap and it's turn four and it's turn five, all of a sudden and, and like you have, you know, four or five mana out, all of a sudden like your average top deck is just way better than your opponent's average top deck. Their top decking gushes, which are fantastic on in the early turns, and your top decking draw threes. Yeah. Your top decking two ones and two twos, you're drawing five fives. You have to make it there. But once you make it there, your cards are just bigger than theirs. That was interesting too, because in one of the games uh, you were playing, I think it maybe may have been the first week, mm-hmm. and Kevin and Randy, I think, were talking, and you were kind of behind on board, and they were like, yeah, you know, like the bug deck doesn't really have this, blah, 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 you know, like the big blue. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you drew a bunch of cards, and like you were in it, and I think you won that game, which is exactly where bug wins from. People are like, yep, this game is over, and then you're like, nope, this game is not over. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I remember that was a that was a fun game. It involved in one big turn, like playing a Vendelin click, demonic tutoring for a time walk, walking, attacking for three, snapcastering the time walk, attacking again, and just like tempoing over. My opponent had a mentor, right? Like he would have won if he had gotten enough turns to activate it, but it was just I had the mana. You still have the power cards. You still have time walk, ancestral demonic, and you have. Uh, I mean, the painful truths. It's a little, it's, it's not the same thing, but it's a little like running the, uh, the four treasure cruise Delver deck. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's that pushed back two turns, right? It, it does what Delver used to do very early, like a little bit later, where it's just, I'm going to refill, I'm going to refill. You can't, you're not going to outdraw me when you're running three painful truths and four Leobolds. They're not going to outdraw you. It can't happen because they don't have any ability to draw. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been in a situation where essentially I'm playing off the top of my deck against my opponent, and it's like turn five, six, top deck, painful truce, cast it for three, cast the treasure to cruise for three, and then I have a bunch of cards in my hand. Yeah. Look at you guys getting <laughs> painful truce restricted. At least we have them for another BNR cycle. Thanks. I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's restrictable. Don't tell me. <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> We'll all beg Nat. We'll send him letters. <laughs> Please restrict painful truths. It's warping the meta game. It's just too good. It's, and I think this is appealing to some people. But it's definitely a deck you kind of you kind of have to metagame it, right? You kind of have to be on top of everything. Like land's still in that way. There's like a little tweaks. The stuff that I didn't quite get there with because I ended up facing it until drives me. You know, like one week you might want more dismembers main deck or you might want a different removal spell main deck. One week you might want fewer or, or maybe abrupt decay is more important or maybe you run four snapcasters. You gotta just be on top of it. Of course I'm saying that, but at the same time I know that, uh, Jimmy will often say the reason he likes bug is he just doesn't play magic for six months and then picks it up and beats people. <laughs> So maybe I'm totally wrong. Well, I mean, I think that there, uh, I think the majority of the main deck is like pretty good and you don't need to change. I mean, the metagame slots for me are like Tassiger and Gurmag Angler, Baleful Strix, Trigon Predator, and the number of removal spells. Everything else I've never changed. The mana base is excellent. I never change it. It's only, there's only a few cards that this affects, but because it's not a Gush deck, and you know, Gush is a fantastic card, but because it's not a Gush deck, you're not limited to only running islands. So, A, you get the Wastelands, which is fantastic. It's just Wastelands, an incredibly good card. But B, you kind of, um, 
it's not a mana base blue players are used to. It's got like a bayou and a main deck swamp, but maybe no main deck island. But like it's good. Like the, the mana base that you guys were working with is pretty much. I think I was playing the same exact mana base. I'm not sure. It's good. Like it it, it lets you play all the spells you want to play, and you're not restricted to. uh You don't have to just run four underground seas, four tropicals, which would stop you from being able to play thought seas into a green spell or something. Yeah, the only main deck basic lands is the swamp, and I it's hard. It was hard because you're like, oh, I need a basic island, right? But like the deck doesn't run on blue, the deck runs on black, and you want to be able to take life with your death right shaman. You want to be able to untap, and if you're having an attrition war with mana, throw your basic swamp down and cast a Gurmag Angler, and that's all you really need. Yeah, yeah. A little uh, pro tip for the audience: I think uh, when a lot of people are building their mana bases. It's sort of, I don't want to call it a mistake, but something that they underthink. People think, oh, well, basics are good at its wastelands. And that's true. But you have to think about what is the game going to look like in a situation where I care about wasteland. And that's why I think the swamp is so smart. If it's game one and you are on the play and you do not know what your opponent is playing, so you don't know whether or not wasteland is a factor yet, you don't want to be in a situation where you're forced to get an underground sea to play a thought seas. By running swamp instead of island, you don't have to be in that situation. Conversely, I don't think uh your list has a ton of yeah, we're not running the full set of cantrips. There's not like three or four preordains in the deck. No. So you're you're more likely to want to play turn one duress than you are to want to play turn one ponder or preordain. It's not just a matter of counting up your your blue spells and your black spells. You gotta think like, in the game state where Wasteland's going to hurt me, what do I want? And this deck wants Swamp. It doesn't It doesn't want an island. It wants to run the black spell out there and not have to worry about what the opponent's going to do. Yeah, and I think the last time that I played the deck, I don't think I played any duress effects. I think that my whole game plan was I'm getting, going to interact with my opponent on the stack and on the board. Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly good too, and you still you still want the swamp in that situation too. Oh yeah, uh, because exactly what you're saying, you you want to be able to cast those Gurmag anglers. It's not as important for you to cast your blue spells against shops as it is. Well, actually, I was talking about Thoughtsies, but it's the it's the same thing with Deathrite Shaman. Like you want to be able to play a turn one Deathrite Shaman against an unknown deck. It's a lot safer if you can fetch out a swamp or a forest to play it. So that swamp is really nice in the main deck, and the, and the forest is at the sideboard. When you yeah, play. that basically always means that you're going to be able to cast a three drop on turn two. Because if you go yeah. swamp death right, you know your well, you don't know your swamp is going to still be around. But unless they unless they strip it, it's going to be around, and you can if you drop a duel into a waste on turn two, you still get it your three drop, even though it's going to hurt you. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe even more importantly is getting a two drop if your opponent. Is on shops like That's if they play point. a sphere, yeah, you're going to be able to do that. And if you, you know, if you always know what your opponent's playing every time, then it's not quite as important. You can just make, you can just hold off. You can not fetch out the wrong land if you know your opponent might have wastelands. But that's not how magic works, right? That's not how a real tournament works, right? So it's nice to have that little safety net there. Andy, how has Bug been doing for you in the VSL? <laughs> Awful. Uh, <laughs> To be clear, for for posterity's sake, I was in the VSL play-in tournament. It's not the the full-fledged VSL. I don't want to misrepresent myself, but uh, it's 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 a very complicated format. But basically, I played one small four-man tournament with an Eldrazi deck, which did terribly, and then I played a six-man double elimination tournament 
with um, the bug control list. Do the winners of both of those end up in the the main event? It was a very complicated. Yes, yeah, it was. It was. It was very complicated. But there, it started off with eight people. Three people made it in. So I was. It was a four man. The undefeated player makes it in. There was another four men next week that I wasn't in. The undefeated player makes it in, and the remaining six players do a tournament. And like the people who went two one, and the four man tournament's gonna buy and the six man. This is very complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's when I when I explain it that way, it sounds weird and not necessarily confusing. But like how it's built is it sort of maximizes because it's all it's a hundred percent feature matches. Nothing's off camera, so it maximizes the chance that every match you watch is like something on the line. So there, okay. there's more total matches where the winner either. The winner of the match either wins the whole thing or the loser gets knocked out. Right. So it kind of adds a little, you know, suspense and tension. If it was just a Swiss tournament, like a straight Swiss and the top three make it in, then after the third round, like four people wouldn't be in contention and you'd just be watching them play against each other with no effect on the tournament. So they, they did a lot of weird machinations to, to make it so that every match like mattered more. Which is kind of cool, but it is definitely hard to follow. I'm trying to remember, I had I won very impressive game against a uh, mentor deck where I did all these crazy plays and and then to look like time walks. I'm honestly I'm forgetting what my first loss was. Was that against the mentor deck, the time walk that got power blasted? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I definitely lost that one. So I so I beat a mentor matchup. I lost a mentor matchup. I think. No, no, I lost that mentor matchup. That's all. That was the same match. I only played two matches. I lost them both. <laughs> I did the I did the second worst. You're terrible at this. It's true. Reduke was knocked out first, but we both went low. No, I think the I think the storm concern was a trap for you. It was. It hit me both times because in the in the original event I was running no rods in my Eldrazi deck. All three of my opponents ended up just not carrying out no rod, and I ran them because I was worried about outcome. So I would have had a slightly better deck if I wasn't worried about that. I don't want to complain or act salty, but I did in my first round against Mentor, I did do a lot of crazy stuff in the first game and in the second game, I had a very good turn one and then drew lands for five turns and died. And in game three, I kept a one land, one death right shaman hand, which maybe I shouldn't have, but I did, I did not draw land for for a while after that. Well, you drew all the land the previous game, so you sure, should have known. I should, I should have known. I should have just mulliganed that, knowing that I wouldn't, you know, that I'd already tried. <laughs> but here's the thing. I mean, I I think that it was a good choice. I think I got a little unlucky, and I would have won that mentor match most of the times I played it. And then my round two opponent was Stephen Menendian with Eldrazi. I specifically took out anti-Eldrazi cards. I took anti-Eldrazi cards out of my deck to replace them with anti-blue cards. It was the opponent I didn't want to get paired against the most out of the whole field. I played against round two. He beat me. That was the, the second match was a train wreck. Not only was it a terrible matchup for me, like, I did not play that matchup as tightly as I played the other games. And it, was, it was still fairly close, though. It went to three games, right? Like I think so. And there were definitely, if I had drawn slightly better, it definitely could have been different. Yeah. Or if he had drawn slightly worse. But, you know, I, I, I think he was the favorite to win. And I also think, you know, I did... I didn't help myself with a, with a few moves, but I don't I don't necessarily think it's the deck's fault. I think I met a game did a little poorly, and I didn't have as much experience with it as other decks. I think it's a totally solid deck, especially just Leovold right now is great. Usually, I'm the person who likes to play the card that's being hated rather than the hate card. Like I'd rather play Gushes than Leovold, but like Leovold's a little different because it's it's not symmetrical, so it's not like you can't run your own draw spells. You can run Gushes if you wanted to. 
it's reasonably sized, right? It's three mana for a three three. That's not terrible. Do you get to use his second ability very often? Not too often, but I think part of that is because like they're making decisions to not destroy stuff that gotcha. they would gotcha. otherwise be destroying. I mean, okay. you if they kill Leovold, you get a car off of it. So mm-hmm. you can see it that mm-hmm. way. Like they have to kill it. They they usually have to kill it before they win. If it's a blue deck, they usually have to kill it before they win. So you're going to get your card back. It has all sorts of weird benefits, the second ability of, like, Oath triggers it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. 10 minutes, you get to draw 20 cards and then just, like, hit your Mind Break trap. And... Yeah, I, I didn't have that happen, but I, I learned about that. That's amazing. Yeah. Every, <laughs> every time you get targeted with Leovold. So it makes Duress really bad against you because you're just, you know, it, it's not even a one-for-one one for them. But, yeah, if they cast Tendrils on you, you're drawing cards equal to the Storm Count. And you draw all of them before the first copy of Tendrils resolves. Because they have to pick targets first. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, and that's why Josh and Jimmy both convinced me to do this. That's why I was running one Mind Break Trap in my sideboard. And you could run more. But the idea is like, with even just one Mind Break Trap in your sideboard, suddenly Liam Old is like a lock piece against combo. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it wouldn't be, right? Because they don't necessarily need to go off with draw spells. A three mana, three, three is kind of slow against combo. It's not that exciting. But, if you have those Mind Break Traps in there, and you just know, if Mind Break Trap is in the top 10 cards of my deck, you cannot kill me. And that's only if Storm's 10. Like, maybe it's 20. Maybe it's 30. Yeah. It's, it's in May. You can't deck yourself with it, because it's in May. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. And it, it's even, like, protected. Like, if they have dresses, they can't beat it with dresses. Because if it's the seventh card down, there's nothing they can do. Defense Grid stops it, right? If they just run some Defense Grids out there, you can't cast the Mind Break Trap. But it is, it's nice. It's nice to have yeah. that option. I so weekend, Leopold was brand new. You know, it's so like people weren't used to playing against it. And you know, I had some people. Someone cast a ponder into it on purpose, just to scry, preordain, and then someone activated Dax plus one ability, and then immediately realized what happened and discarded two cards. <laughs> <laughs> so Andy. I don't know the VSL schedule. Is it a seasonal thing? Will you get another shot at this? They're about to do the real VSL. We got three people from the play-in um, made it into that. Uh, I think who, probably who made it? So it is Oliver Tew, who um, actually is is from Boston, but I've never met him before. He is sort of known for being a legacy player. Another guy, uh, Rodrigo Tagoras, who is also uh, known for being a legacy player. He's notable. I, I didn't know any of these people before the, the plan, but I've met them now. He's notable for a very recent Grand Prix where I heard like four people talk about this before he was put in the VSL. So, so it was a big deal. I don't know if he won it, but it was this fantastic feature match game where he was playing against a miracle pl- miracles player who had like three fluster storms in hand and a divine and a countertop. And he had this like very small hand that was like, you know, the, the commenters were like, well, this, you know, this game's over. It's a joke. And he just played this sequence of like 40 spells in the perfect way with like the perfect head games and just won this insane game. And everyone's like, who the hell is this guy? This guy's insane. <laughs> so he, he was there too, though he didn't play combo. He played a, a deck pretty similar to the Sultai deck. It just, he also ran white and some other cards. So he made it in, and then the uh, the LCQ of the six man was uh, Rachel Agnes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing anybody's names right. She's actually sort of been campaigning to be on the VSL. She's got like a big Twitter presence. I think she streams and she might do a podcast. I'm not sure, but she wrote a few articles about like, hey, I'm prepping. Please, you know, I want to be on the VSL. 
here are the decks I'm testing, you know, and she took one of the decks that she wrote an article about testing for the VSL and she played the exact deck and she just beat everybody. So, so pretty good. awesome. Yeah. I did not make it. Steven Nendian did not make it. Kevin Crown was in this season. He didn't make it. I was really hoping for Kevin to make it on. I mean, obviously I would love to be on myself, but, uh, and it was also Caleb Turward and Reed Duke, who most magic players know who they are. I feel like that might have been everybody. I feel really terrible if I'm missing one person, but it's I cool. We're... I mean, you know us. <laughs> Mediocrity is what we aim for. Oh, it's true. It's true. Yeah. There will be another VSL playing tournament. I think there's there's like a complicated process of uh there's some like voting if you're on the Patreon um for who you want to see on there and and some returning fan favorites are there. Uh there are no guarantees. I think I have a pretty good chance of uh being on it again, but it's not uh they don't know this far in advance. They don't they haven't planned that out yet. So I actually think all this talk about bug is a kind of a cool transition into uh, our next topic of Aether Revolt, because one of the cards, we're not going to talk about too many cards, but one of the cards we want to talk about is uh, Fatal Push, which I think fits, probably goes right in bug. I don't know how many. What does it replace, though? Uh, I'm not sure. It, it replaces a removal spell. I think I would probably try it in place of Murder's Cut. I play Murder's Cut in the sideboard. But I, I don't know. Fatal Push is interesting because it checks two very important boxes for me, being one mana and instant speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Fatal Push, what that does, if you're listening, and you probably know what it does by now, but it's uh, it's just one black mana. It's an instant. As Josh just said, those are super important. It's just destroy target creature that costs two or less, uh, but it has an ability called a Revolt. And we could talk a little bit about Revolt. Revolt's one of the two new mechanics in either... Revolt. Um, <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> Whoa. And, whoa. <laughs> Revolt says, basically, you have a card that does one thing, and if a permanent you controlled left the battlefield this turn, Revolt triggers, and the card does something better. It's like a like a free kicker or something. I guess it's not a kicker, but it, it, it's an increased effect. So for Fatal Push, it kills a creature that costs two or less. If a permanent has left play this turn, it kills something that costs four or less. Which is a big deal. I think the critical point there and what I didn't put together at first was that Revolt says permanent and not creature. Like, it would be really crappy if you had to have a creature die in order to activate Revolt. But the fact that it's just the permanent means that pretty much anything that you sacrifice, like Lotus Petal or Lotus, or even more on the things that happen every game, fetch lands will trigger it. So... If you just hold your fetch land back, you can very easily activate Revolt whenever you want in order to dispatch that three or four casting cost creature that's giving you harm. Well, I think it kills almost all of the creatures I would be concerned about in Vintage outside of Reality Smasher and Tinker targets. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I suspect they did not consider Vintage when they were designing this mechanic, but I bet they did consider Modern. Yeah. I bet this the Revolt is really interesting Fetchlands are in modern, right? <laughs> that's yeah, that's I a thing. Yeah, we're just making that up. Okay, new fetches are. All right, so like, it, it's an interesting way because it is a lot harder to trigger a vault in standard. Like, it's sort of you have to put it together. I mean, it might happen a lot, but you kind of have to plan for it. And if a, if a permanent happens to die now, maybe you want to play your spell right away. You can't time it. You can't just get it for free. So mm-hmm. it's a really cool way. I think Fatal Push is the only one that really makes the cut in vintage, but the mechanic is a really neat way of making a card 
for two formats at the same time, right? Yeah. Like it's it's balanced for standard, it's balanced for modern, it's probably balanced for vintage, and it's the same card and it's a removal spell. Yeah, it should have been totally on the nose with artwork of the guy kicking a tarmogoyf off the boat or the spaceship or whatever that thing. Is. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a great altar to me. Yes. <laughs> well, you got to do a play set. It's one, it's one charm of life. It's one, like, it's like a thought, thought seer. Really yeah. good. Oh. Yeah. I think it's also notable that in vintage, um, a lot of decks, like most cards actually cost two or less. Like even if you can't get revolt, there are a ton of good targets at two or less. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even though just one black, this kills a ton of stuff. Most stuff, I would even say. Yeah. And when I look at this card, I think, so it's worse than source to plowshares. Right? Yes. Obviously. Most removal spells are. It doesn't exile the creature. I mean, swords, swords gives them life. Usually that doesn't matter. Swords can also kill Tinker Targets. It can also kill Reality Smasher. You don't need the Revolt. In general, I think Swords to Flashers is better. So when I see this card, I'm thinking about the decks that do run black already and don't run white. Bug or Sultai Control is definitely a natural fit for that. Oath is another one. And so is Storm Combo. And when I think about Oath and Storm Combo, they definitely want to kill creatures, and they only want to kill creatures that cost two or less. It's like random hate bears, mm-hmm. containment priests, and Aegis of the Gods, and all that stuff. You don't even need to put a permanent in the yard. It's just one mana to destroy a creature is better than anything they have right now for that specific role. I definitely think this is going to see play. I don't think it's a four of it anything. I don't think it gets rid of Dismember from the metagame. Dismember can be cast off colorless mana, and it kills reality smashers. I guess there are some big shops things like Worm Coil Engine that Fatal Push can't kill. But I do expect to see it. There's a lot that doesn't kill Worm Coil Engine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's just things <laughs> so, Especially black cards, if that's what, where you're in. Yeah. It's also worth noting the fact that it's one is great. The fact that it doesn't cost life like this member is great. Those things are even greater when you put something like Snapcaster Mage or Jace Prince Prodigy in the deck. If you're planning on casting the same spell multiple times, maybe multiple times in a turn, it makes it that much more important right? The ability to Snapcaster the Fatal Push with three mana up, where you couldn't do that with like, I mean, I guess the equivalent is like a Doom Blade, which people just don't run because the second mana is too much. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it, it's a big jump from one to two, right? Yeah. Now it, is, it is it is misstepable. That's definitely relevant. I don't know how relevant. It could be so important that the card isn't as good as it looks, but I definitely think it's good enough to play. I don't know if we've talked about it before. We may have, but the difference from one to two is huge. The difference from two to three is huge. Like CJ in the chat was talking about disallow, which is that combo counter spell and stifle for blue, blue one. And man, like those are good effects, but taking your counter spell from two to three, is just not acceptable in the format. It, it makes me wish that, that our costs were scaled a little bit differently so that we had the ability to have, like, half mana cost and stuff. <laughs> Just because th- that gap is so significant between the one and the two and the two and the three. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that that's relevant in Fatal Push, too, because I think if Fatal Push said the first ability was mana cost three or less, it would be insane, because you'd be able to kill Mentor without any effort. Oh, yeah. That'd be bonkers. You know what Fatal Push kills really well, though? Goblin Tokens. Walking Ballista. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a fantastic transition there, Jeff. <laughs> I can't wait for the transition from this card. <laughs> oh, you! it's happening. Uh, yeah, so Walking Ballista is our other, uh, our other pick for the two cards we want to call out specifically. Now, there are a lot of cards in either Revolt and a lot of cards that I expect people to try, 
and a lot of cards that I expect people to say they're going to try and then give up before they build the deck. <laughs> and a lot of cards that sound cool, but I think that there's two two cards that are a tier above the rest. And one's Fatal no, Push. There are the three. There are three. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so we're going to be talking about three cards today. I forgot. <laughs> we don't know what the third one is yet. <laughs> oh. Oh, you know. <laughs> the second one is... is Your uh, heart knows. <laughs> I, I, I have an idea now, but I'll, I'll wait. Uh, Walking Ballista is... Uh, from the new set, it costs XX. It's a zero zero. When it comes into play, it gets X plus one plus one counters. Same mana to power ratio as a uh, hangerback walker. You can pay four mana to put a counter on it anytime, which is a lot more mana than a hangerback walker. But in theory, you could add multiple counters a turn if you had enough mana. But you can remove a plus one plus one counter from it to deal a damage to a creature or a player. Uh, if you've been playing vintage. Ever, at any point, you're familiar with Triskelion. It is a good card that sees play in a lot of shop decks. Yeah, so I have to ask, right off the bat, is this just better Triskelion? I mean, I think so. I'm taking a, a strong opinion stance on this. I think it's absolutely better than Triskelion. I think we're going to see Triskelion maybe slowly, maybe quickly, but I think we're going to see it disappear. Yeah, and I think Triskelion, the, the difference is this is a little bit more expensive on the front end, but it has significantly more reach in a longer game, right? Yeah, but when you say but, that... Um, but not if, really. If you want a 4-4 creature, if you want a 4-4 Triskelion, that costs you 6 mana. And if you want a 4-4 Walking Ballista, that costs you 8 mana. That is more. But if you want a 2-2 Triskelion, you can't do it. Right. But a 2-2 Walking Ballista costs 4. Yeah. And if you want a 1-1... One, one, your Triskelion and Walking Ballista for 6 will both have 3 pings on them. And I yeah. know that in, in in certain cases, in actually quite a few cases, Triskelion gets 2 pings because the last ping has to be itself so you can get it back with a welder. Yeah, that's true. Those were the days, Jeff. Walking, Those were the days. <laughs> walking Ballista just dies, which is, is pretty handy. It can be. Or if it's being stolen by a Dakfaden, you can just throw them all off. Um, yeah, that that happens sometimes with with Triskelion too. Before singing the praises too much, um, there's probably some other situations, but I'll mention a few situations where Triskelion is better. Um, one of them is if you have a Goblin Welder, you can throw the three counters in something and then weld it out, and then if you weld it back in, it'll have three counters on it. If you weld in a Walking Ballista, it's a zero zero. It dies. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That sucks. Yeah. So if you're running, if you're running a Goblin Welder deck, this sucks. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> if you're running a Goblin Welder deck. Triskelion's better. Another, what I think is even more important is Phyrexian Metamorph. Metamorph is a, is a very solid card. Now, I'm not running it now. I don't think a lot of people are running it now, but sometimes it's really good in the metagame. If you Metamorph a Triskelion, you get a Triskelion. If you Metamorph a Walking Ballista, you get a 0-0 zero, zero that dies. Hmm. That is worse. Now, that works both ways because if your opponent has Metamorphs, then they can't copy your, your Ballista, and you could just not run Metamorphs. But if you were already playing a deck and you were sold on running four Metamorphs and four Welders, I would not run Walking Ballista. I would run the Triskelion instead. I'd probably run, like, Mirror Battle Spheres instead, but that's, you know, that's separate. There are probably a few other situations. It is bigger. The turn after you play it, if you have exactly six mana, the turn after you play it, it attacks for more. But this said, I think the upsides of Walking Ballista just dwarf the downsides. And by far, the biggest upside is how many games I have lost playing a workshop stack with Triskelion in my hand. Like, a lot of them. It's a very good card, but it, it's, it is... It's expensive. Six mana. And uh, yeah. you're playing a deck with spheres, and pretty often, there's no good time to play it. Sometimes you have to choose between 
playing a sphere that will prevent you from ever being able to cast it or casting it right now, and it's usually better to play the sphere. The ability to play it at four or two is gigantic. I think that does a lot. I think there are decks out there that ran Fortress Guardians. I always was scared to do that. It's just too much to get stuck in your hand. But if your opening hand has two walking lists in it, that's fine. That's good. You can play one early and then hold on to the next one for later. can play one for zero on turn one. Bam. You can. Yeah. You <laughs> which can, is totally legal. You can play three for zero on turn one. Oh my god, this card is insane. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's interesting too because it totally changes the combat math and it has a little bit of an element of a time walk in it because when you're done with it, you can essentially just attack and then cash it in and attack twice. Yeah. And, and Trisillian do some of those things too, but it, but Ballista does it way more consistently yeah. and faster. Yep. And you can get it down under spheres, which is just really nice. I wouldn't necessarily even call this as a selling point. I don't know yet, but... Sometimes you do actually have access to four mana to add counters to it, and it can get out of hand, particularly in games where you happen to have an academy. Now you're running one academy and no tutors, so it's not gonna, it's not something you build your deck around, but if you happen to draw an academy, it's not unreasonable to get four mana at the end of their turn, add a counter every turn. It might not be unreasonable to get eight mana at the end of their turn yeah. and add two counters. It gets really out of hand when you're talking about that kind of stuff. In my opinion, making it more castable just improves so many other things in the deck. Once you've gone from two Triskelions to four um, Walking Ballistas, suddenly Arcbound Ravager is a lot better. The Arcbound Ravager-Triskelion combo is always insane. It's just as good with Walking Ballista, except Walking Ballista can come out faster. So Ravager-Walking Ballista, uh, because Ravager has modular, you can sack all of your artifacts. You can sack the Ravager True itself, put all those tokens on the on the Triskelion or the Walking Ballista, and then throw them at your opponent. So whatever your opponent's life total is, like if you have that many artifacts, you win just immediately. Yeah. You don't have to attack. That's a good point too, because in this instance, like if you really just need like four or five life, you can just cast this dude for one and use it as your means to an end. Yeah, for sure. I was talking to Rick Shea about this card, and he brought up a point. He used to say when you're playing against a Tresselian deck, you sort of have this um, mindset where uh, four life is this magic number. Like you have to stick at four. If you're stabilizing, you have to stabilize at four or higher because if they draw Triskelion at any time, you don't want to lose to that. But Ballista sort of throws that away. Most of the game, it's going to be the same size as Striker, smaller. But if you're talking about a situation where it's turn six and you're trying to stabilize, your safe life total is half of your opponent's mana, whatever that is. And it's a shop stack. Your opponent might have ten mana out. Yeah. That means you can't go below six. If they have more mana, they can play it as a five-five and then add counters over time. Like it. it you don't know what you can and can't survive, which changes the way you play, which is great. Some side things with the card. Now, I am most excited about the card in Workshop decks. Uh, I've heard people talk about running it in the White Eldrazi deck. I think it's kind of a brilliant addition to Bomberman. You can get it with a Trinket Mage. It's converted mana cost to zero. Yeah, that's awesome. pretty awesome. I never thought of that. Yeah, it, And it's also a kill. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you have Infinite Mage off of the Salvagers, you don't need a, a Spell Bomb. You can just make a 2021 blister and kill them. That's awesome. Yeah. And if you naturally draw it, like as compared to like naturally drawing a pirate spell bomb, which can be good, but I think most of the time just drawing a walking blister off the top is better. Plus you're playing a mana drain deck, <laughs> maybe. So that could be pretty dumb. Oh yeah, neat. Yeah. I don't even know what that deck would look like, but 
somebody's going to build it, and it's it's not going to be awful. Well, it depends on who built it before you make that judgment. All right, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> there's a potential for, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's the there's the blue red uh, blue moon deck. You don't see it too often, but some people play it. It runs trinket mages just for value. I could see it running one walking ballista. It's hmm. great. Just another piece of that trinket mage toolbox. Yeah, and it's a card that's pretty versatile on its own. Being able to kill a mentor for four mana is kind of where it's at. Uh, people were running Fortress Skellions because it was one of the best ways to kill Mentor in the deck, because you were willing to pay six mana just to kill a Mentor, but you don't have to do that, right? It gives you a lot more opportunities to just pay four for it at a one for one. Now, paying four to as a removal spell doesn't sound good, but we're talking about a workshop deck. You can't run color spells, and you can run Mistress Workshop, so it's really kind of even. You're, you're kind of spending the same that they're spending. Yeah, so I, I went into this discussion absolutely convinced that Fatal Push is the best card in the set, and I think you just convinced me that this is actually the best card in the set. No, no. There's a better card. All right, well, I'm still waiting for Jeff's, but... Because uh, you know what's even better than Walking Ballista? I don't know. I'm going to have to look this up, I bet. Is Walking Ballista when you have a Winding Constrictor out? <laughs> I, I, I thought you were going to go there. <laughs> of course I'm going to go there. This card makes salads insane. So let's, uh, why don't you tell us what Winding Constrictor does? Winding Constrictor is even in the perfect colors for Thalids. It's, it's, uh, it costs two, a black and a green. It's a snake. And if one or more counters will be placed on an artifact or creature you control, that many of those counters plus one are placed on it instead. If you would get one or more counters, you get that many of those counters plus one instead. So if you put a plus one plus one count on your Walking Ballista, you get two. If during your upkeep you put a, a fungus counter on your Thalid, you get two. That's two-thirds of the way to a sap rolling in a single turn. It doubles. It doubles so the amount of score counters that you get. Yeah, it's basically doubling season, except it doesn't cost a million mana. I know, right? Perfect. You could run multiples pretty easily. Yeah. What's yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, like, What's the ideal curve look like, right? You play turn one Thalid. Turn two, you play Winding Constrictor. Thalid's already got a spore counter on it. Turn three, you play Paradox Haze, so you get two upkeeps. <laughs> oh, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, yeah. And turn, turn three, you're already getting your first Sapperling. Yes. Because start with one, it gets two the next turn. But but you might not, because turn four, you might play Thelen? I think it's Thelen, that makes all of your, your fungus get plus one, plus one for each spore counter on them. So then you just win. Oh, that's true. I got that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking that card up right and now. Like, I gotta go brew. Uh, or yeah, throw up there, one of those two. There's the time spiral four drop. It's like two green green for like a four three or something that uh it puts a spore counter on all of your all of your oh, yeah. fungus. Four star salad. That guy's really good. Which would which would be two counters on it with yeah. the uh constrictor yeah. out. See, this is great. It really this is great. right here. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I mean, Felon plus that card, this, those Thalons would get very big very fast. Felon's actually pretty strong, not going to lie. Yeah. Oh, and you can remove a fungus card to put a spore counter to each fungus. That could be two spore counters if if you have a constrictor out. Wow. It's just all coming together. So, I mean, I think that's – there are a lot of cards that are cool on the service, but I really think that the uh, Fatal Push and the Blister are the, are the ones that are going to see that. And, of course, the um, – And, of course, Winding Constrictor. Obviously, it's going to dominate every table. I uh, – <laughs> Because people like hyperbolic statements, I'm just going to say it. This is this is a very easy statement for me to be wrong on. Not only do I think Walking Ballista is the best card in the set, I am convinced it is the best card in the block. 
and I am convinced it is the best vintage card printed in 2017. Well, I'm, I'm calling it. I will follow no way they're printing a better one. With a prediction of my own, I think that in 2017, there will be zero copies of Winding Constrictor in any top eights. <laughs> <laughs> you specify vintage. I think Winding Constrictor is in a standard deck. Like, that, that did really well last weekend. Yeah, I could certainly see that. Like, I mean, well, that's, that's very different. Yeah. That, that effect is a strong effect. It is affordably costed. It's a pretty strong effect. There's a whole lot of counter using cards that could use that. Yeah. I mean, vintage. This is a, a two mana two three. This is an alliance's rare all day long. I mean, imagine if Time Vault still used time counters. Yeah, fair enough. If that card was a two man, was a colorless, like a two mana one one artifact instead of a two mana two three colored creature, I think I could see vintage play. Ooh, that would be interesting. But uh, I, I don't know if it would, but it could. Yeah. Uh, but at, at the, yeah, at the cost, I, I got to side with uh, Josh and not Jeff on this one. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you guys killing me, Jeff. You can prove I'm killing me. The ball's in your court. Don't make me do this. <laughs> it's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Andy Verbasco. And that sounds really weird to say now. I know, right? Yeah. It's, it's so sad. All right. We hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip. Take a little trip. Take a little trip.